welcome to the Present Age Podcast. I'm your host, Parker Malloy. Joining me today to discuss her new newsletter about sandwiches and the rise of the far right is one of my favorite writers, Talia Lavin. Let's get started. So joining me today is Talia Lavin. Hey, how's it going? What's up, Parker? It's yeah. good to, to, to see your face, hear your voice. Um, presumably listeners won't be able to no. <laughs> see our faces. No, um, that's that's for the best. No one needs I, to see my I face. Get, I get to see your, your beautiful face, and, and that gives me joy. Well, thank you. <laughs> um, so, yeah, you've been, you've, you've been writing this awesome newsletter over on Substack called The Sword and the Sandwich. Can you tell me a little bit about that? Yeah, so I launched actually this month, October 4th. And it's a really odd, it is an odd mix. Like I, I recognize it's an odd mix. The sword. So the sword is, first of all, because I own a bunch of swords and love them. Uh, but also it sort of symbolizes like I'm writing about the American right and far right. Uh, and then the sandwiches are very literal. Like I, for a really long time, have been obsessed with Wikipedia's list of notable sandwiches which is like has hundreds of sandwiches on it uh, from all over the world. And I have wanted to like address this in some systematic way. I love projects that have structure that I can like fuck around within like a sonnet. So I, the premise is like, I'm going through every sandwich on that list. It's very arbitrary, you know, obviously a Wikipedia thing. So it's, but I'm going through and treating it almost like as a sacred text and then going through it and writing essays or interviews or recipes or stories about each sandwich. So we've covered the American hero, the uh, bacon sandwich and uh, bacon, egg and cheese. And now this week we're on to bagels, which is exciting for me. So yeah, this week's content is uh, harrowing tales of child abuse and bagels. <laughs> That's just such an interesting combo. And and just just to be like those are separate posts. They're not they're oh, not yeah, one it's in not, the same. It's not it's not Yeah, so it's like Monday is the like shit that will horrify you and then Friday we're riding into the is weekend. Is the stuff about the is the stuff about uh the American right? No, no. Friday <laughs> is the same. horrifying bagels. <laughs> no, I I really aim not to traumatize anyone with my sandwich posts. These are non-violent sandwiches. It's like, I need the break psychically, maybe readers do too. And sometimes it's really hard to shift modes when it, like the current series is um, about corporal punishment in evangelical households and the sort of ways it impacts people as, as adults. So it's really hard for me sometimes to switch modes. I almost resent it. Like I'm like, uh, like now I have to write about a like bagels. But then I spend an hour researching and writing about bagels and 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 I feel better. <laughs> and then dive back into uh hell. Yeah. <laughs> well, as as you mentioned, you you published the first of a three-part series on corporal punishment evangelicals and the doctrine of obedience as as you write in the in the piece. I found it fascinating because I honestly didn't I've never really thought about the history involved in all of that. I'm used to people on Twitter 
being like, I don't, I don't think it's wrong to hit kids. I got hit and then, and I'm fine. And then you look at their, them and you're like, they're, they're not fine. Um, no, yeah. no, it's like, oh, you think you're fine, <laughs> but are any of us really, um, I'm not, no, no. I mean, I'm not, <laughs> I'm definitely not. I'm like, so not, not fine. And I, I wasn't raised evangelical. I'm a Jew and, and I'm a childless Jew even. Uh, so it's not, I, I can keep some distance from the material. Like, well, obviously so many people shared their pain with me for, for this series, lots of different facets of their pain, their, their stories, how they're coming to terms with it, how they're healing. And to me, not to be melodramatic, but it felt like, oh, this is why I became a journalist. And like, I have to hold this pain gently and treat it well. And treat it as like the sacred trust it, it it is. I mean, I don't believe in any God, but whatever. Sometimes I think of things as, as holy or sacred as just a, a stronger word for like really important <laughs> feels necessary. I've been astounded at the response. I mean, I, I tried to, I have like a tick about historical research. Like almost every piece I've ever written has some element of history in it. I also dove a ton into primary sources for this piece, which in this case was Christian parenting guides, of which I read big swaths or the entirety of like three or four books. And then tons of people's testimony about like how these doctrines affected them. And then I looked at what's the historical context? Like when did these, why did all these books start, start getting written in the seventies and, and updated in the nineties? When did, I mean, corporal punishment obviously has been around forever, but like corporal punishment is sort of a political necessity and as a theological doctrine uh, really arose as like, and the evidence is pretty clear in the books themselves. And also in, in like the historical record uh, that they arose as basically a backlash both to the work of Dr. Spock, who wrote uh, Baby and Child Care, and like he was super popular and everyone loved him. And he was also an anti war activist in his later years uh, and like got arrested, like protesting Vietnam. And like he said, don't hit your kids, right? It's hard to overstate how much these authors hate Dr. Spock. Like, they hate him. They think he sucks and he's the reason everything's wrong. But anyway, you have this Dr. Spock influence telling you not to hit your kids. And then essentially what these books posit or like what they feel they're reacting to is like a lot of the movements in the 60s were student-led. The anti-war movement, the gay rights movement, you know, was was a youth-led thing in many cases and or perceived as a youth-led movement. The feminist movement was really led by young women and the sort of curative, the corrective force is writing these books. James Dobson of Focus on the Family fame, his first book was called Dare to Discipline. Like he's like, we're fighting against this godless heathens that tell us not to hit our kids. And so basically they're saying chaos and social disorder starts in the home and like you have to hit your kids to get them in line. I cannot wait to read the second, third piece of this because the first one is great. It really starts to get into Dobson and the pearls and all, all that stuff. And the responses have been heartbreaking that I've seen from people where they're talking about how it affected them on a personal level and 
on one hand, it's it's amazing that people that the story has resonated with that many people and that that's clearly captured what they're feeling, what they're going through. And I mean, that's just that's just you being a great writer and interviewer and researcher. I mean, beyond that, it's just so profoundly sad that there are so many people in this world who have been hurt in that sort of way. They haven't felt able to express these ideas themselves for for fear of backlash or for fear of coming off as weak. And that that was another thing that I saw in in some of the replies here. But or like or yeah. or because they were taught that it was holy. That yeah. It was ordained by God. Mm-hmm. And a lot of the people the people who spoke to me have left evangelicalism. Mm-hmm. There's a process. It's like a very common term in sort of ex-evangelical spaces is calling it deconstruction, sort of tearing down the doctrines you were raised up with and figuring out a new way forward. And I really applaud people who are doing that work. It's very difficult. It's very painful. My Substack's really new. Like mm-hmm. I, I have, you know, 3,000 subscribers. It's small. The post, as of like now, I mean, it's been out for less than two days and it's gotten 50,000 views almost. I think to me, that's just an indicator of how it resonates, how people, I mean, first of all, I think there are a lot of outsiders who are sort of horrified. And then there are a lot of people who are like, this was my childhood. I've never heard it discussed this way. I've never connected these dots. It's, and, and the heartbreaking thing is like, people are so grateful grateful that someone cares anyone about what happened to them generations of kids generations like i I, the people who talked to me were ranged from 22 to 65 like it's a very much a live issue it is still happening and although spanking is thankfully I i hate the term spanking actually because spanking i think has a lovely place in kink but when you're talking about it in, in child rearing, you were talking about hitting kids. So I, I've actually sort of very consciously in my public speech about this stuff, like stopped using that term because it feels like a euphemism to me. You're talking about hitting children with the, the intent of causing pain. That's exactly it. I found it. I, I made the mistake of not writing down any questions because I was like, I know you. We're going <laughs> to. We're, mean, we're, we're, just, we're, we're just going to vibe about it. Yeah. And it's like, it's like, oh, man, this is so dark and hard you know but that's what i love about your writing you wrote this amazing book culture warlords and yeah it was about um basically me fucking immersing myself in 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 online nazi life for like 18 months and it was hard it was a hard thing to do as a jew as a person who yeah. doesn't like seeing clips of murders on my phone all the time presented as like just and right but i guess yeah my um my beat is like looking into darkness and coming back out with a report it feels weird to be like you're so good at this you know (laughs) this thing that involves so much like hate and darkness and pain and but your book was my favorite book of last year and it's it's one of those books that I, i recommend to anyone who's at all curious about what's happening in the world, because I don't think you could talk about any current event without talking about how so so much of our lives is affected by the far right and, you know, white supremacist groups and anti-Semitic, you know, people. And it's really kind of scary how much all of that overlaps. You know, you have the, the white supremacist groups, they 
tend to overlap in their beliefs with a lot of the evangelical groups, which tend to overlap with a lot of the anti-LGBTQ groups, these, these sorts of things where there's a very powerful and strong coalition of people that, I don't know, I, they just make the world a worse place. Um, by by what they do and what they say, not not by existing. I mean, I'm 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 all for people existing. Uh, <laughs> I want to make that clear, but I think that what their actions and what they do just makes makes things so much harder. Is there anything in going into writing that, or in just your work generally that surprised you? That, that were there any ideas that you had that you had to challenge and rethink? along the process? Well, so one of the big, uh, how do I put this? Okay. This is sort of, I will answer your question after, but this is something that like the cultural warlords was my first book. I'd never written one before. And it has some first book syndrome, which is like, I put too much of myself in it. Uh, You know, where it at points like bordered on the memoiristic in ways that I now look back on with a little bit of regret just in the sense that it feels a bit self-indulgent sometimes. Like we didn't need a chapter in my like childhood. The other major regret I have is like not including, I did address transphobia in these contexts. I didn't address it as much as it deserved. Like it should have had its own chapter. And I'm working on a second book right now called Lone Wolves Run in Packs which is about sort of debunking the sort of like lone wolf theorem that people radicalize in isolation, that sort of white supremacist terror arises because like individuals make choices. It's much more about the communities that these kinds of extremism arise from. And I know transphobia is going to be like at the center of a lot of what I write because it is at the moment, as Judith Butler like very eloquently articulated recently in the guardian like at the forefront and center of all of these rising fascist movements and i mean it is all interconnected like that's that's what uh that's what makes it sort of endlessly fascinating and sometimes a bit overwhelming is like you don't know when to stop researching but so for example part two of the series is about basically how child corporal punishment affects romantic relationships in 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 the future and essentially it's like if you grow up in an environment where you're told where you accept pain as your due and specifically in an environment where god is invoked constantly your sinful nature is evoked constantly and the the, one of the more terrifying aspects of this whole christian corporal punishment thing is like there's a very strong recommendation in all of these parenting books is like after your kid gets spanked first of all if they cry too much from spanking they're trying to manipulate you so spank them again uh and then also like hold them and tell them you love them and you know explain like whisper to them gently about obedience like it's creepy as fuck to me uh but it also is like this is trauma bonding like that's a that's trauma bonding is a concept in psychology about it's like a big way of how abusive relationships work where like basically you're traumatized by someone they hit you they belittle you whatever and then they they make up with you afterwards and and hold you and comfort you from the trauma that they inflicted and so these parental 
doctrines are essentially, and they're not unique to evangelicalism. I think the unique part here is that sort of theologically mandated in some circles and some biblical interpretations. Um, but like, it is pretty common. And, and the people that like I see who are like defending hidden kids in my mentions are like, my parents always apologized after and like told me they loved me and I turned out great. And like, did you? But because uh, you're defending hitting kids to me, uh, like you're, you're pro child assault. So I don't know how fine you turned out. But at any rate, at any rate, so like basically my th- a thesis of the second part, and this absolutely bears out in, in 100, the 150 people that that talk to me, many of them. And most of the people who responded to my questionnaire, which is a smaller subset, said, like, I was primed for abusive relationships. Like, I was primed. I knew how to pretend. I knew how to conceal my emotions. I was taught that I was worthless. I was taught that I deserve violence. And I could expect it from the people that loved me. Like, that was the lesson of my childhood. And, of course, it it went on to affect what I accepted as, as proper treatment in in romantic contexts and there's tons of other shit i mean sorry i'm babbling at this point but it's like uh you know now i'm like reading a whole new set of primary sources about like you know with christian homeschooling materials and uh these doctrines about you know patriarchy and submission um and like specifically it affects girls very strongly Men are also affected. Boys and men are also affected, um, for sure, in slightly different ways. Um, and I mean, it, of course, it's all connected. If like the people that I talked to did some really brave work in in moving away from from the ways they were raised with this kind of brutality, many people don't do that work for many reasons and go on to reproduce it in their lives. Like it's really, really hard to say like my parents who loved me and who I love hurt me and did wrong. Or like I hit my kids and I was wrong to do that. It's like really, really, really hard to to make those moral distinctions to assess your past and and present critically and a lot of people are neither inclined nor able to do that and with all the 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 empathy and respect that i i can muster i think one of the roots of of authoritarianism in our country and especially among you know the christian right is, I mean, this is a nascent understanding. It's not backed with science. It's more just like what I've been researching lately. I think there is a current of tremendous violence that undergirds this culture. It's like because hierarchies of sex, of gender, of, you know, of spouses and children as property, you know, are at the core of this doctrine and enforced by often brutal, often daily physical violence. So how, I mean, so it's a self-reproducing ideology in that sense. Right. Yeah. Um, And 
Yeah, I mean, that's, that's a great point. Uh, you know, one other thing I wanted to kind of touch on here, not to not to change gears too, too sharply, but, but um, one thing that I think that, you know, both, because we, we both worked at Media Matters for a little bit. And one of the things there is just sort of examining this, the right wing media ecosystem, which exists on big and small scales. You have the Fox, you have Fox News, which, you know, large, but you also have weird little networks of right-wing bloggers and that coordinate very closely. And that's not something that you see on the left as much um, or at all. And and that's why there's this ability of people on the right to, to really get people to, who oppose them to be quiet, to shut up, to go away, to not, to not bother them because it becomes not worth it. And I know that I've, there have been times where I've seen something and I'm like, I want to write about this. And then I have to think, is it worth it? And when you wrote your book, that was after you had already not only been targeted by ran- randos online, but you had uh, you had ICE giving you giving you <laughs> shit. You had the you know DHS upset because you t- you tweeted about a, 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 an ICE agent's tattoo, um, which. You weren't even, you were not the first person to tweet that. And you were really one of the, one of the few people who actually said, oh no, I, I, I mistook that tattoo. I am sorry, my mistake. But it was clear that there was this idea that you were influential in a certain sense and they wanted to just make your life kind of hell. What was that like? And how did, how did that affect what you write about and how you write about it. I mean, in the, in the sense that, in the sense that there has to be sort of this fear that every time you go into writing these stories that you're going to get targeted. And I, I know that it can take a major toll on, um, on you. And I think that, I don't know. I just, I, anytime I see something like that happen, it just, it breaks my heart because it's, you, you do such great work and yet you have, you know, you, you had the federal government giving you, you know, giving you a hard time and trying to like push you out of your job. Yeah. I mean, it sucked. That was back in 2018. It also, it like, but it recurs daily in this like very warped way. Like, uh, I got Ken Clippenstein in the nation to kind of tell my story through we sued ice under FOIA to be like, what'd you actually have? And they didn't have my tweet because I had deleted my fucking tweet, which by the way, didn't say this guy's a Nazi. It was just like a picture of the tattoo that Ice had tweeted out without the guy's name. And it looked like an iron cross. Uh, and and then like a picture of, you know, an iron cross. It was like, it was sort of like a question mark. Whatever. I, I, it was a late night thing. I'd seen it tossed around in different circles already online. And I woke up the next, and I deleted it after 15 minutes. I was like, I, I made a mistake. You know, people have pointed out it might be a Maltese cross. And the next morning, I issued a press release blaming me. <laughs> and we, we foia their emails and they were like, oh, like, we don't have her original tweet. No one had it. <laughs> like, given all the people that picked over every aspect of my life, you'd think someone would have screenshotted that original tweet if it truly virally influenced a trend it it, it didn't mm-hmm. it, like straight up didn't that's not factual and 
but at the time, I mean, I was very young and I mean, not very young. I was younger <laughs> and naive. You're like, it was, it was three years ago. Whatever. <laughs> like, I know <laughs> I've, I've aged 40 million years in the interim because that was my first, I had written a bit about the right, you know, I'd started writing about it. I wrote my first piece, like about the far right in 2017. So like, I was pretty new in that realm. Um, and I'd had a couple of daily stormer pieces about me or whatever, but like this, it sucks. It hurts. It's weird. Um, but when you are public, you kind of expect it. I was public on a much smaller scale than I am now. Mm-hmm. And I was employed. I was a, a fact checker at the New Yorker and, oh God, like I, after it was just like, we were getting so much, the, 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 the fact checking department was getting hate mail. And at the time, right. I was very earnest. I loved my job. I loved my coworkers. It's still the best job I've ever had. Uh, probably ever will. Because it was fascinating. I was learning something new every week. Like, I got to do research all the time. It was great. Right? Um, I called fascinating people constantly. But, like, I really was like, this is... I was very like, this is impacting poorly on the company. This is impacting poorly on my peers. Like, I must sacrifice myself because, like, I just don't belong here anymore. And, of course, like, I was getting so much hate mail and, like, segments on Fox about it. And, like, you know, because I painted a giant target on my back over a line because I was a convenient target. I mean, I, it's like the New Yorker. She's a Harvard graduate. She's Jewish. She's fat. She's the media, whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, and like, I was a very convenient culture war proxy. It was like also at the time, uh, a time of very intense outrage at the whole babies in cages thing. So it's like, let's throw some meat to the lions or whatever. And the meat was me. Uh, and I mean, so it's like, I, I was so naive and so traumatized, frankly, that I was, it was an awful week. Like self-harm for the first time in ages like you know and it still comes up constantly like people anytime i say anything like someone will be like didn't you accuse a veteran of having a nazi of being a nazi i'm like no um i didn't (laughs) anyway um but like how do i mean if then you sound all tinfoily when you're like the government was lying (laughs) um like it's hard to yeah it's hard to like and I was stupid. I was stupid to resign and the cement a narrative that I'd done something wrong. Like, I have so many regrets about how I handled all that shit. Like, now. Now that I've been through the fire a bunch more times. Um, and I will say, though, it it severed me from traditional journalism, at least staffed traditional journalism. Like, I've written in a lot of publications since, like, from the New Republic to you know, uh, the, like to vice and whatever I've, I've had freelance bylines all over, but I basically, besides a brief stint at media matters, which I got laid off for pay, like, uh, for like money reasons. Um, uh, they, like they were trimming down their extremism department, which seems like (laughs) a weird decision in retrospect. Yeah. Uh, like, I haven't had like a staff job since and now I'm substacking 
Uh, I appreciate the stability of Substack. I also like, obviously there's turf ambivalence. Like I don't want to be like the first Substack experience I had was like Glenn Greenwald being like, how dare you like tweet, you know, in, in saying like, I think Substack shouldn't have like these outspoken turfs on it anymore. Um, which fuck Glenn Greenwald. <laughs> He's just like a troll all the time. I call him Glurb in my head. Glurb. Uh, anyway, whatever. It's not so interesting. I've written about one piece that kind of goes into my reflections and what I'd learned from that whole shitty, depressing incident. And like it's various ripple effects, like Laura Ingram calling me a terrorist and stuff. Um, I, I wrote a, 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 I had a conversation with Liz Lenz who writes the Men Yell at Me newsletter, where we talked about kind of what it feels like to get these kinds of mobbings. They're absolutely techniques to silence. They're very frequently employed by the right because the right has a much stronger villain of the day kind of methodology. That's what they do. That's like, we've studied right-wing ecologies of information. And like, essentially it's like, yeah, a villain of the day can go through so many iterations from all of these ideologically completely uniform, like like putatively distinct media brands. And and it's like it's a little like the five minutes of hate thing from 1984. And when you're the subject of it, it's very and I've talked to a lot of women particularly and, and trans women, you know, women through uh queer women like just women basically sure. uh through i'm sorry to make that i didn't mean to make that as a distinction it's just more like the different loci of vulnerability we're good like, <laughs> when, uh almost exclusively uh, uh women through through the process of like how do i get my information off offline how do i deal and like i have some practical tips mostly just like sign up for delete me it's a useful service mm-hmm. Um, anyone who's a journalist, frankly, I think should be signed up for it. Uh, cause like there you'll have, chances are you'll have your time in the hopper. Um, especially if you are not a conservative white man. <laughs> um, but like, um, a lot of it is emotional guidance. Like, like the, 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 the way I describe it sometimes is like having the roof ripped off your life, like things that you like you feel like you're just like toddling along a relatively insignificant figure and suddenly you're in a national spotlight as villain of the day. And it's like, it's just a fucking traumatizing experience. Really. I feel like this podcast is you asking like reasonable questions and then me like, like just rambling. No, I mean, I'm the, it's all, it's all very, it's fascinating because it's hard to explain to people who haven't gone through anything like this. Cause I, on a smaller scale, I've gone through this. I've had, uh, like there was one time it, I was, I was at home and I was just sitting there and, uh, well, Andy no posted a thing that was, it was like a photo that showed his like backpack with like white, like dots on it. And I said that it looked like a pigeon pooped on him. And I thought that was just kind of funny. And I closed Twitter and I took a nap. And then when I woke up, <laughs> um, I had people who were like, wow, you were cheering for him to be poisoned with 
cement milkshakes and beaten to death. And I'm like, what the fuck? <laughs> and so then I delete my tweet and I say, I was like, I, I'm sorry. I didn't mean for it to be taken that way, et cetera, et cetera. And one thing I've learned is if you, if you publicly acknowledge something and if you publicly apologize for it, they go, ha, we've got you. And, and the, you know, and that happened with, um, I remember there was one time, uh, there was a Trump rally where Dave Weigel at the Washington Post tweeted out a photo that was like, showed the rally kind of half empty, but he, it, it took it from a weird angle. It was, it was an accident. He accidentally showed the rally looking small and Trump himself, who at the time was the president of the United States, tweeted out a demand for an apology. And so Dave responds by saying like, yeah, sure. I'm sorry. Yeah, that was a mistake here. You know, here are some other photos from the event. We're good, right? You know, and then the response to that was Trump then said, you should be fired. You know, it's, it's this whole thing where if you ever acknowledge that maybe you got something wrong, that is what they just cling on to and, and create their narrative around. Yeah, and that's, I mean, that's why it's, it's like, so it's like, frustrating. It's don't, don't show the, the whites of, of your eyes. Yeah. Kind of oh, Andy Nyo is like such a putrid fuck. I really hate him. <laughs> I called him a, I think I called him a like fas- fascism adjacent dipshit in my book. Um down on paper i wish it was in the index is like go andy <laughs> comma fascism adjacent dipshittery of comma See, like, also <laughs> yeah <laughs> right um he sucks and he, and he's so deeply transphobic and racist like like all of his it's interesting like he's a very big purveyor of the five minutes of hate format and he always highlights like gender non-conforming protesters he highlights black protesters like it's very calculated it is very like obviously comes from very deep-seated bigotry on, on his part and to me that is just like factual it's it, it's the way he works and he knows who his audience is and he is who he is um we met once because i was covering this conference oh, i was like him oh, and i remember tim- that I, I it was in the book yeah, yeah. it was like him and tim pool uh, like organized this conference to prove how like tolerant they were, and I wound up being chased out. <laughs> yep, <laughs> which to me was like pretty. And then they were like, "You were chased out. You just walked away while being followed by people." And yeah. like, okay. Well, and also you were live tweeting it at the, at, at the time, so it was very clear what was happening. <laughs> you know, it's like anyone who was reading your tweets saw that you were. They were. There were people there who were treating you horribly. And then well, you- Nyo said I looked like a pigeon and that I'd waddled away, which, like, pigeons are very noble birds. They can eat garbage without any adverse effects, and they successfully hide their young offspring, such as I've never seen a baby pigeon. So I admire the pigeon as an urban bird, and um, I don't, I don't find it offensive. And if you know what, but like whether I waddled or sauntered or whatever, <laughs> people were screaming at me yeah. and like, and I would describe that as being chased. It's like so surreal. You wind up in it. Like, I think I opened the chapter on that rally by just being like, I'm sitting at home arguing about whether I was chased or not. <laughs> like you wind up in these obscene, like stupid semantic scenarios. And they were like, we're going to get security footage from like the casino. It was held at a casino. Uh, like to prove that you weren't changed. And they never produced the security footage. 
found like one security chief guy who was like, no one was chased probably. And because of course you would say that, right? Yeah. You're but not going like, to be like, yeah, someone was chased and we just kind of sat back and we're like, huh? <laughs> like, yeah, people routinely get ideologically run out of our casino. <laughs> like, you know, and, and, and they're so like enamored of gotchas. They also mm -hmm. love like choosing the most unflattering pictures of me online. Um, like, I think also when you're a, a woman and like, so they inherently see you in this like sexualized way, like the sheer amount of fucked up shit that's happened with like my photos, someone posed as me on 4chan and like, but like, it was like, I'm Dahlia Laban, a journalist. And like, here's a bikini photo of me to like prove it. And like three separate times I have, I had posted like one bikini photo in yeah. the history of time on the internet. And like, and like it's just like weird shit like saying like you look like a neanderthal or like like weird photoshops like it just you know what i'm talking yeah. about like oh, it's absolutely. very sexualized and it's also this like mix of like you're disgusting and and i'm going to sexually demean you uh and like i will say that's one of the things that like I know has left some res residual psychic shit. Like I've, I've had periods of my life where I like look in the mirror and I'm like, am I the monster? They think I am, you know? And it really depends. It's like, if I'm having a good day mentally, like it all just slides off my back. If I'm having a bad day, like it can sink in and, and like this don't feed the trolls shit. Like they're not going to go away no. if you feed them or not. Yeah. <laughs> like the, you know, it's not like you can't imp like you can't blame people who are targeted for how they react right yeah and and that's the thing it's like i still don't know how what the right way to respond to there is harassment like is because there's not yeah it's it's just a bad situation and it's i mean that's part part of the reason i i, I don't know I, I i felt there there came a time where i couldn't just mentally commit to having a full-time job, if that makes sense. I mean, I, I kind of got to this point where my mental health had just deteriorated from a lot of the same, same stuff that you were just, just kind of talking about where, also you know, media matters specifically is like, look at horrifying and trauma, <laughs> yeah. and traumatic shit, like all fucking day. Yeah. It's like, I write love it the... up in these little bulletins that no one reads. Like, I mean, it's great and they do great work, great but like, work, but it is it's... a tough organization to work on. Yeah. I mean, it's, and, and I, I feel like it's only gotten harder over the years because it used to be like, Hey, look, Bill O'Reilly said something that wasn't true. And now it's like, Oh, uh, Tucker Carlson invited the grand wizard of the KKK to, you know, like, and you're just like, how did we get here? And and especially and people who the the people there who have to do so much of the research on 4chan and you know all the online stuff. That well, is, I mean, that was my yeah, job. Yeah, that, was, that you. was my job. Every time I talked to, every time someone would say to me like, "Oh, oh, wow, I can't, I can't believe that you have to do." This. I'm like, at least I'm not. I don't have to watch NRA TV every day. <laughs> I don't have to. I don't have to go through 4chan. I mean, people would point out to me when, whenever something I tweeted on tweeted would end up being screen capped and posted to 4chan, which was sometimes helpful and sometimes I was like, I don't need to know this, <laughs> you know. Um, and it's, it's just like just FYI, they're yeah. posting picture pictures of you on 4chan. It's like, oh, cool, cool, cool. 
but yeah, it's, I mean, it's, it's tough and it, it takes a toll on you that I don't, I don't know. And it, it's, it's hard to just go, well, it's only a few people. It's only 10 people or a hundred people out of millions out there, you know, or something, something like that. But I mean, if you're, if a hundred people are tweeting about you nonstop or messaging you or trying to start a harassment campaign, I mean, it feels like it's the whole world. I mean, it, it, it really does. And it, it eats away at, it was eating away at my ability to stay focused on work and doing what I wanted to do. So that's that, I mean, that is personally why I was like, you know, it's like I had a lot of reservations when it came to making a jump to, to trying to do a newsletter and especially with Substack. Um, but ultimately I was like, I think this is the better option for me personally, because it provided a certain level of stability, a certain level of just me being able to write a bunch of things in advance. And if for two days I can't work or can't, you know, function essentially, um, then I'm, I'm okay. You know, that's, that's kind of one of the, one of the plus sides there. So, yeah, I mean, yeah. Freelancing is super publisher parish. It's like, if I don't write, I don't get paid. And and sometimes it's hard. I mean, like, I, yeah, I mean, that's, that resonates so much. And, and, uh, I think like it's, I mean, people have asked me like, or, or like concerned family members. I mean, like, why don't you write a cookbook? <laughs> Like, why don't you do something different? And I'm like, I, yeah, no, I will. Like my third book is definitely going to be like a food focused memoir. That's, that's the plan. But I, I have, and, and, and when I'm like talking about my current work, like I'm, oh, oh, now I remember what I was going to say um, about why it feels so powerful when even like a relatively small number of people are coming after you. My therapist, not to be like my therapist, but my therapist uh who i started seeing like just before the whole ice thing uh and he's lovely and we've been in this therapeutic relationship for years he's like it's evolutionary like there's a reason why we select selectively remember bad things selectively like prize or like you know sort of focus and obsess on bad voices about us it's because like there is an evolutionary mandate to like be aware of criticism so you don't get kicked out of the tribe and lose like your ability, your security and your food. Like it's like there is an evolutionary mandate to like like keep an eye on on criticism. And it's a self-preservation mechanic in its way. It only becomes maladaptive in this like completely unprecedented context of like within like a minute you know, a million people can see like your stupid thing. Like Twitter, I think in particular is very like the sort of I'm talking to my sphere and then suddenly it gets catapulted into a much larger one. Like that's a unique feature of the platform. It's part of what makes it fun is like being able to see voices that you never would have heard and like people from all over the world and all that stuff. But it can entail this like relatively traumatic leap from like I'm just talking to my buddies to like now everyone's criticizing me for something and like sometimes it's from people who are like leftier than me and sometimes that can be more painful because I'm like I I probably agree with you I just wish you weren't being such a dick about it yeah. uh 
And or am I wrong? Like, should I like retire and become a Benedictine monk? Um, and then it's from the right. And like, to be honest, that's less painful for me most of the time. Cause I'm just like, oh, I'm used to yeah. genocidal fuckers being like horrible. Cause I'm like anti genocide. Um, Whoa, bold position, anti genocide. I mean, like, I don't, yeah. And like, I, whatever. It's like, it, it, so context collapse is a major thing, but also like there is an evolutionary. Not that I'm like so into evolutionary biology because I think it's a lot of bullshit sometimes, yeah. but like there is like a survival uh, value in like looking at critique. It's just the level and ubiquity and immediacy of that critique. Like these are not your tribe. You're not gonna like barrel your food, but like you're still wired to be like, you know, uh, yeah. to 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 keep it in mind because they also might kill you or whatever. Yeah, I mean, it's it is good to, you know, there is that that line of you know, is it good to be aware of criticism or not? And there's there are obviously things that you know threats to your life and you know like those are important to know and to be aware of because you don't want to be harmed by someone, you know, or or your family. Yeah. Or yeah, that is another one. I mean, I've had, you know, I've had situations where it's, it's been, you know, I've gotten messages from, from people who are like, you know, talking about my family and, you know, where they live and stuff like that. It's like, what is wrong with you? Why, why would you do this? Because you disagree with something I wrote online because you disagree with me. And, you know, those, those sorts of things, it's, (sighs) It's a it's lot very, of it's yeah. yeah it's a, it's a product of you know this this time of hyper connectedness that we live in you know and and the way we communicate which is kind of I mean that's kind of the angle that I I I'm trying to think about about a lot of things I mean that's kind of the the premise of my of my newsletter is just the present this, age yeah yeah it's like here we are and everything is insane and I don't know what to do you know but we're trying to get through it and. With the, with the, I mean, with the pandemic, especially, you know, so much of our communication has shifted to the internet that might not have been before. But I mean, in, in my case, and maybe yours, it's like, yeah, it was already on the internet, (laughs) but you know, it's like, I was already spending way too much time on, on social media before the pandemic, before it was cool. It's like, I'm a weird recluse. Yeah, exactly. Half my friends are online. Like, yeah. Yeah. I mean, uh, I think it's just. It helps me to reframe that. I think a lot of people who are in this experience, especially in the first time or se- for several times, are like, you know, am I weak for like feeling bad? I'm like, no, it's like it's it's human nature. Like, you know, you're not weak. Like, please don't don't beat yourself up about like having feelings about people saying terrible things about you. Like, you know. That's that's part of my like Talia's pep talk for traumatized victims of the right wing, like hate complex uh, thing, uh, and you know, and there's also the like, am I like wrong for seeking it out? And like, you know, it can be a discipline thing to like try to not seek it out all the time. Mm-hmm. Um, but like, I, like it's also human nature. Like, forgive yourself for 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 that for wanting to know. Like, that is also a, a very natural impulse. And, like, uh, in my case, 
I mean, like stuff does happen that I need to be aware of. Like, you know, when literally the organizer of Unite the Right, Jason Kessler, like posted my mom's office address on a Nazi blog. Like shit like that. Like I need to know. I need to warn. And I feel so fucking guilty that my family has to suffer for my like choice to traumatize myself every day. <laughs> it, I mean, it is interesting. Like, I do feel like the evangelical series that I'm working on now is like, is interconnected with a lot of this stuff in ways that are like maybe less explicit, maybe less overt, but like it, I think it is interconnected. I also think these are just stories of pain that deserve honor and, 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 and telling and careful telling. Um, but I do think it's interconnected. I also think like, you know, like in my experience, if you deep dive and learn a lot about one thing, you see the way it shows up in lots of other places. Like I've rarely regretted learning a lot about a subject in my time. Yeah. But like, could I be focusing on the Charlottesville trial? Could I be focusing on militias? Could I be focusing on, like, what are the Oath Keepers up to lately? Like, could I be focusing on, like, the anti-vax white nationalist, like, nexus? Of course. There's so many topics. There's, yeah, like, there's no shortage. <laughs> yeah, I had to explain to someone, like, when I'm talking about, like, I study the far right, there's a massive range of topics covering tens of millions of people. Like, it's not, it's like... How could you have such a narrow beat? It's not narrow. (laughs) Like, it's almost mirrors in that sense. My experience with like academics, like I was very serious as a a student and um, I like, you know, I didn't do a PhD. I thought about it, but it was like, I was studying like, you know, one poet and like all their works and how they came to translate things the way they did. And the deeper you dive into one topic, the more of a world it encompasses. Mm-hmm. Like you learn one thing and you learn the history of it and something else and something else and something else. And so I, I rarely regret my sort of history based and, and, and deep dive model of things. Uh, it's sometimes very intensive. It requires a lot. I think I've bought for this project, I have bought like eight or nine books already. Um, including some that are only available on paperback. Uh, so I'm going to get a copy of God, the rod and your child's bod in the mail, which I then, I then plan once I read it and use it, I plan to uh, publicly burn it. Yeah. I mean, that's gonna, I I feel like buying that is something that ends up getting you on like a, a a watch list or something. (laughs) You'd think, but you know what? Public, like corporal punishment is legal in, in, in public schools in 19 states. Yeah, it's legal I mean, in private schools in forty-eight states. My just, home state of New Jersey is one of the two. <laughs> it's banned it in private there schools. There you go. See, so, New Jersey. Jersey We've pride. banned something. Yeah. <laughs> Jersey pride. I, I and like I, I feel conflict when I'm like talking about like should it be like many countries have outright banned sure. corporal punishment uh, of any kind, even by parents. Uh, you know, even by parents, whatever. Uh, including by parents. Sweden was the first in 1979. And like, is that what I'm advocating for in the US? Like, if we had a less shit justice system, and a less like racist justice system, and like, whatever, like, it's such a punitive and carceral society, 
maybe that's not what I'm advocating for when I say like, I'm just like saying don't hit your kids on social media a lot lately. Um, I do think it's like a very reasonable demand to say like ban it in schools. Like because people get paddled in schools every day and it's disproportionately black students that get paddled. And, and that's by that's, paddled, I mean struck with a board oh, to cause oh, pain. Yeah, yeah. Well, and I and I mean, and that's that's another another issue in, in itself is that you you know with with any policy with any any sort of action, it's you know the enforcement of said action or policy is tends to affect you know marginalized groups more than you know you're more than everyone else basically. But I really appreciate you taking the time to talk to me. You are one of the smartest people I know, one of the best writers I know, and I cannot recommend enough that people subscribe to The Sword and The Sandwich for both Sword and Sandwich posts because yeah, you will, you will learn something in both. <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm like looking in at all this stuff about the history of the bagel right now. I found this New York Times article <laughs> um, uh, from 1960 that called bagels uh what was it an unsweetened donut with rigor mortis i mean um yeah (laughs) like okay first of all it's so good i'm a i'm unabashedly pro bagel in my life um so i don't trust anyone who's not pro bagel to be honest so yeah so so there is the sandwich part the sword part uh is you know rougher but they're both valuable in yes. their own way and thank you so much for having me on um I, anytime yeah <laughs> uh and um i enjoyed this kind of loose wide-ranging conversation yeah it was great so. it was so much fun i i really appreciate it That's today's show. Thanks to Talia Laban for stopping by. As always, you can find a complete transcript of today's episode at readthepresentage.com.